0: This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with High Performance Director at Austin FC, David Tenney. He discusses his multidisciplinary approach and how they prepare the players in a variety of aspects. The importance of understanding physical and cognitive fatigue and how to support players with this, as well as his time spent with the Orlando Magic and how this helped him become a better practitioner. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, David, I know we caught up a little bit there and you are in a baking Austin at the moment, which coming from someone from England is uh yeah, is it's scary how hot it gets out there. But how are things are you uh, how are things with you apart from that?
1: Um good, good. I mean, we are um uh in Austin post Leagues Cup, back in MLS Cup play. Um obviously Messi arriving has has changed the league, uh, I think. A bit shaking some things up within the league. Um, ourselves, we have a new sporting director in Rodolfo Borrell, who was with uh, Man City uh, coaching staff previously with Pep. Um, so it's yeah, uh, you're, you're seeing you know this league is uh, probably one of the fastest evolving leagues in the world. And um, you know, Austin, we've um, you know kind of in the thick of things, and you know, seventh seventh place currently. And um, you know, it's. It's it's interesting because you know the the course of, of the league here goes so uh, changes so dramatically. I guess over the course of the year. I mean, currently, as we were talking about before, it's been over forty degrees here in Texas for all the Texas teams, and probably you know close to two straight weeks, may, maybe three straight weeks um, above thirty eight degrees, almost forty days now. So um, that that changes. You know, you approached almost everything, um, taking that into account. Yeah, that's what makes the, the job fun. So
0: perfect. So for people that maybe don't know you and haven't come across your work, do you just want to give us, I guess, a bit of an overview of who you are and I uh, guess what the main main aspects of your role are from a day to day basis?
1: Uh yeah. Yeah. Um I am a soccer football person through and through. Um grew up in Washington, DC. Um as a very young child, Johan Cruyff played in Washington D.C. So I, you know, I kind of played soccer, and and that was my sport from the very beginning. Um, played some college soccer, played a little bit lower leagues in Germany, and then you know, professional indoor soccer here in the states. Um, ended up thinking I, I was going to go into academy coaching. Uh, my intention was always to go into academy coaching, and um, got a, a bachelor's degree in coaching science with that with that thought in mind. Um, went into the exercise science program and uh, was lucky to take the, the A license course in Czech Republic back in 2004 after year, after the Euros in 2004, where the Czech team was one of the best teams, you know, in, in that tournament. And, uh, and it was really highly scientific, um, just their, their normal A license course, you know, um, theory of a license course uh, relative to other football associations had just a highly scientific periodization, um, element to it at that time and that kind of just connected with me I guess I felt really aligned with that whole approach of the the science side um, uh, impacting how you train and how you prepare athletes and um, and so came back and through the different, my, my assistant roles at that time, I was with the women's professional team and I was with uh, the Washington Freedom and I was with a, a college team at George Mason. I started taking on those roles in terms of the, you know, the the athlete preparation and the, and the sports science and the um, uh, the fitness. At that time, you know, the fitness coach um, was what everyone was called. And uh, just really, you know, embraced that and owned that because I felt like it, I connected with it and then uh, had the opportunity in 2007 to go to uh, Kansas City, which is now Sporting KC and MLS as a fitness coach slash goalkeeper coach slash assistant coach. You know, Again, those were early days in MLS. And so you, you joined those clubs wearing many hats. Um, so I did that and Um, I had the opportunity to just focus on the fitness and sports science going to Seattle in 2009 so when when Seattle started in 2009 I did that and uh, was was with Seattle for um, nine nine seasons Um, and as I was going through that ninth season um, just had this really driver itch to try something really different to grow because I'd been in Seattle for so long I kind of felt like I, I was afraid of stagnating, I guess, and actually had the opportunity to go to the NBA with the Orlando Magic, and so I was uh, hired as high performance director for the Orlando Magic in 2017. Um, and uh, was there three years. It was an amazing experience. I I learned a lot of a totally different type of athlete environment, and um, and also I think the high level athletes when you're when you're working with guys that are making you know, 20, $25 million, how you manage those types of athletes are just different. Um, But also then, you know, about halfway through that three years, I realized that soccer was actually my sport and it always remained my sport. And, and as much as I felt like an insider in, you know, in MLS, there's times I just felt like an outsider that basketball was just not my sport. Um, And so I had the opportunity to come to Austin as they were um, uh, coming in as an expansion team in uh, 2021. So I left the NBA bubble uh, post COVID and uh, packed up my stuff and family, and we uh, we drove to Austin. So, um, you know, then finishing the third year here in Austin right now as the high performing director.
0: Perfect. And I know uh, the English love talking about weather, but that's a hell of a transition from Seattle across to Orlando and then to Austin. You've, you've picked some good, good sunny spots there. Um, so, I guess th- let's link initially with, with the role that you're in now obviously managing an entire group organization from a performance yeah. aspect is, is going to be particularly challenging. What are some of the key foundations you think are really important when you're, I guess, going through that preseason period and then key cornerstones that you'll look for throughout the season, just to make sure that you've got a group of individuals that are prepared to play at the at the highest level.
1: Are you Are talking about the athletes themselves now? Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, I mean my approach is you know since then you know I think you've had John Pascarella on the on the the podcast and he's uh he and I were in the tactical periodization course together as well so um over time I think that I've taken a far more specific view of training I think based on some of uh, what I've seen and what works out there and and so we we do tra- and also I think if we're really honest, I mean MLS is still an, an emerging league from from a playing standpoint. So playing as much as possible um, has always been my my approach. And so, you know, it's it's really about, you know, through a kind of sequential buildup of of loads and running loads and running loads th- through playing as much as possible over the over the preseason period is is really critical. And I think, you know, the the cornerstone as you're putting together good preseason is, you know where you want to put the games at. The preseason games, I think are oftentimes your biggest stimulus to, you know, to, to get people physically where they need to be over the course of that, of that period. And then, and then you're using the training and the strength training and maybe some of the non-specific bits of running you're, you're putting in, um, in different areas, but ultimately, you know, Playing eleven v eleven against other opponents is about it. You know, is 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 the most specific thing you're going to do through the course of preseason. So how how you manage that, um, and then how you you supplement everything around that to get the group to arrive where you need to arrive, and then and then as you're getting you know, the week or so before, making sure you're getting back into your weekly training rhythm as best you can, because um, I do think you know the you want to set up your weekly periodization where you know your players are, are responding and adapting how you want them to as, as you're in and around um, your your normal match weeks. Um, in some ways, we're lucky in MLS that we typically early season, the first seven, eight weeks of the league, you're on a Saturday-Saturday game's almost the exact same time that gives you real um, uh, rhythm that you can get into. And that's a huge benefit. We are, we are in the... CONCACAF Champions League this past year, which meant uh, trips to the Dominican Republic and back early and then a little bit different uh, based on Champions League. Um, And then with this advent of the League's Cup and MLS now, there is periods where I think we did have eight straight Wednesdays, Saturdays, uh, later on after about the first seven weeks, which creates challenges as well. So um, I don't know if that answers it. You know, I think it just... uh typically i'd say we have an eight-week period which i think is perfect in terms of laying out your preseason um eight-week period first game probably you know 10 days into that period um we're really lucky um in austin that we can typically do as much of the preseason in in austin as we want to and one of the challenges in mls is you have all of your cold weather teams, you basically have to leave market for almost the entirety of preseason, right? If you're in Toronto or Montreal or Seattle or any, you know, Chicago, you might be, you know, out of market for seven of those eight weeks in preseason, which can, which can create lots of challenges for the travel. And then, and then again, I I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned through the tactical purization is that we when we talk about peerization, we focus on the physical so, so much. And, you know, uh, there is the you know the purization of information you're giving the players. There's the you know, that which is the cognitive piece. There's the emotional piece of how do you work with a group that's the difference between a team that's at home for for large stretches of preseason versus away in a hotel somewhere for seven weeks and how you work with with that type of group. And um it's really about, making sure that the players arrive the first game they're physically fresh but they're also just as importantly mentally emotionally cognitively fresh and ready to go so
0: i think that's a really interesting point that we'll probably loop back around to Um, in terms of like the the physical piece what type of distances are we we generically looking at and do you have i guess statistics for that and do you have statistics in terms of you know how many axels how many d cells high intensity running? Uh, moments yeah Yeah. what does that generically look like for for a team or players within the mls
1: within the actual games then
0: yeah so in in a game what would what would you generically expect to say it's a central midfielder i appreciate from position to position that would change but if you work on the average of a squad excluding the goalkeepers what would you generically be looking at from from players within the mls
1: yeah i mean i think that your most players are covering I don't think it's that different than I think most of the research you see in other leagues where, you know, you're getting, you know, the average player is getting 10 and 10, meters of total distance. Um, uh, you know, your, your top ones might be getting in the twelves, um, for, for games. Again, you see that number drop off pretty dramatically in some of these games that are played in, you know, 40 degree temperatures, of course, um, you know, from a, a high speed running standpoint, it's, uh, you know, your your top guys are in the low thousands, you know, 1,200, 1,300 meters of high speed running. Um and then sprint distance, it's interesting because I think we've got um we've switched over to Chiron Hago um this year for for league optical tracking system, which I think is quite interesting. But but again, all the benchmarks you're getting is against the uh the Bundesliga thresholds for sprinting, which are which are a bit different. Um So, so, you know, a league level teams are getting, you know, 300 to 600 meters of sprint distance. But again, I think those thresholds are a little bit different, you know, based on the Bundesliga um, metrics. Uh, So um, it's, it is clearly an athletic game and it's lots of, of, of running and transition. Um, You know, we, we try to, it's, it's interesting looking at the data because we, we try to be a team that um, has the ball a lot we can then look at through the Kyron Hago data. We we cover in most metrics the highest distance out of possession running, and oftentimes it's because in defensive transition we we have to do so much work back. So, um, if we are, you know, if if you if we're a team that has the ball a lot, we try to press when we lose it, but then oftentimes we're getting, you know, we we are having to run back in transition, which means that you know, I think I think it's really interesting looking at you know and and as you're talking about the the running distances in the sports science side like I, I do find that i prefer to look at any sort of uh running data within game really context dependent on what the opponent is doing what you're doing um how how the opponent's tactics interact with you and and how that impacts you physically right so you know so a lot of times we'll look into you know if if we play a lot in mid block defending then our then then our total distance as a team might be quite high right and i think across across the uh if you look at a league like the you know bundesliga and and how they play they'll have a team total distance at times of over 120,000 meters um which means they're just all working a lot typically you know in in a defensive block and we find when, when we play when we're able to be tactically very strong defensively and stay in our mid block quite well and not get broken down in mid block quite well that our, our team total distances is very high in the low 120,000 meter range. Um, When we are, when we lose the ball, we get caught in the counter and our high speed running and sprint distance has to be up because we're, we're, we're now pressing and trying to win the ball. And then we're, you know, we're sprinting back at times, you know, from a, from a sprint perspective. Um, And so there is, what we would like to do, and then there's times, obviously, what we need to do, right? And so I think my my view of sports science is around preparing athletes for what they may need to do. And I'll often say to you know our technical staff and <clears throat> sporting director, I would you know, I would wish we didn't have to run more than than the opponent every single game. But if we have to, well, then we have to be able to do that, right? So like i'm I'm definitely not one to say. Hey, we had five guys over a thousand meters of high speed running this week. They were great. We were flying because there's probably a reason why five guys had to do more than a thousand meters of high speed running, and it's probably not a, a good reason. It, you know, oftentimes. So, um, do you
0: think you benefit from having a really good understanding of football? I'm listening to you talk there. The level of detail you can go into around transitions or being in mid block and how that affects the players physically is obviously that that's top level. Do you think? people that maybe are from other sports or don't have that grounding of maybe having coaching experience struggle to make that link between the two
1: yeah i, I think probably but I, but is it more there's an experience side um, in knowing a sport but i think also you know what, what i found was interesting about the you know one of the approaches with tactile periodization is the understanding of complexity right off the bat right so if you if you take a course on tactical periodization you know, or let's say, you know, Paco Cirillo's structured training at Barcelona, or you know, some of those different uh, methodologies. The starting point is you know understanding of of complex systems, right? And if you understand complex systems, then nothing's happening in isolation, and you know you want to look at everything in a very nonlinear way, um, and that's and that becomes you know kind of the the framework for how you see the game. So um, once you understand that, that you understand that you are only running you're only running in a certain way because that's how you're interacting with what the other team wants to do tactically. And I think that's, yes, knowing the game might be an advantage in helping understand some of those things. But I think, again, I I do personally think it's in sports science that oftentimes because we're often educated in a very linear fashion, that more is better in whatever metric we're looking at, that we always assume that more running is, is a better physical performance and and it just might not be or right? because you really there's some games where our, where our running our sprint distances could be through the roof but it's because we've been broken so badly in transition that we all have to sprint back and actually we might be we might be fatigued we might be reacting slow and but and that means in transition we're chasing so then our our sprint distance ended up higher and it might give the appearance that we're in a physically really good space when maybe we went in the game with some physical and cognitive fatigue so I think it's that's that's that that rich context. I think that you have to understand as you're looking at all, all these data points.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting what what you're talking about there, particularly around how how you can objectify the data and and use it. And i I'd imagine that it also links to the coach's playing style, right? So depending on how yeah. the coach wants to play, that then is going to drastically change what metrics you get back so actually the comparison of a counter-attacking team compared to someone who's high press it you you can't really use last year's data now because actually it's probably not accurate at all for what the manager's going after to what the players are being asked to do etc
1: yeah yeah and then and then you've got to be able let's say filter like oftentimes when i'm filtering our data and looking at our match data i'm not only looking at it as okay what what was the running from june 1st to today, because from June first on, it's been over you know thirty five degrees for most most days, and you don't necessarily want to look at a match in March when maybe it's ten degrees, and then compare it to today, where you know yesterday we we played in St Louis and it was super humid and probably in the mid thirties at game time. So um you know you again that that's that's just all around contextualizing the data you have and making sense of it. Um, And I think that's an important role of all sports scientists, but I think it's also what people struggle at the most.
0: And how do you manage the, sorry, I'm trying to figure the right way to word this. So obviously you've mentioned like, I guess, the mental or cognitive fatigue, and then you've got the physical fatigue. How do you measure that as a practitioner that you might have players that all their metrics would suggest that they haven't had a lot of uh, high intensity runs that actually they've been able to manage the game and have done so in a way that you'd want. But when you l- look at them or you look at their number of maybe decisions that they've got high cognitive fatigue that might lead to challenges moving forward in terms of their ability to take on information yeah. or ability to react, how would you go around managing that? Because I'd, I'd imagine that if you can catch th- uh, the point where they might have high cognitive fatigue. You might be able to catch them before they start getting into real high physical fatigue, yeah. because they're making poor decisions that's leading to them then having to make up the mistakes.
1: I think that that's the hardest piece, isn't it? And that's all. That's also why in sports science we become so reliant on the physical piece, is because it's the easiest thing to measure. Um, and when it comes to the cognitive and emotional loads and and fatigue, those are a lot harder to to measure. Um, you know, you can certainly do it through subjective wellness um, surveys or I think one way you can potentially get a uh, you know a way to do it. I don't always find that professional athletes that, that we dealt with um, are give you great feedback necessarily when you're doing subjective wellness surveys. I'll so just say it like that. Um,
0: they want to play, and, right? They're like big kids. They just want to play. Yeah. So I was just like, I'm just going yeah. to give you an answer you probably want to hear so that I still play at the weekend. Yeah
1: yeah yeah and um so I think again that that does go back to this again My you know, my my um research I mean my PhD was in you know uh organizational leadership you know in using qualitative methods so I think you're really trying to qualitatively view these athletes rather than purely quantitatively right and so I think it is about, you have to be really hands-on you have to have lots of discussions with them and you have to understand where they're at. And, you know, and then you do have to, you know, the old cliche is, you know, you have to develop relations with them, with them. Um, you have to be close enough with them where they'll tell you that they're physically, mentally, emotionally tired. Um, you know, and I think that's rather than just a, a quantitative measurement of this player normally was X, and again i think with certain groups you you can do it really nicely through some of this you know um subjective wellness surveys but but i i find that it's it's one it's um being a really close observer during training sessions you know i think that's that's a key and and again i think that that's why as i work with sports scientists here you know some of the young sports scientists it's really easy once the training session starts to kind of sit behind the computer and, you know, and look at running loads and all that. But I think to be a really, really close observer to training, to see how players react in certain, you know, um, situations, to see, do they seem frustrated all the time? Are they bitching all the time? Um, Are they slow to react in certain situations? Uh, I think that's really your, the, the key to, you know, the emotional and cognitive side, I think are really, in training session behaviors and observing those really closely. And I think that's, that's, it's really hard because it's, it, it can be, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a clear science at all, but, but again, I think that's, that's the power of the qualitative, of the the power of, of, of really maybe expert observation, you know, once the training session starts to really try to match up, are, are the players behaviors in training similar to how they normally would be in training sessions? Um, and, and and to really view things through that lens.
0: No, that's a that's yeah, that's really interesting because I know there's a lot of work going on at the moment, particularly over in the UK, around co-coaching, yeah. um, or how you work as an MDT. And then there's a lot of work around you know in in possession, out of possession coaching, or yeah. having bullseye groups or whatnot. But I think the principle of actually maybe having someone in your team, and it might be the sports scientist, it might be psychologist, it might be someone else, just looking at it from a perspective of are we catching behaviours that we wouldn't expect to see that are out of the norm for that individual or that group? as almost a flag point to say, okay, that's something we need to keep an eye on. It might not be something we have to address, but is there a level of frustration that's unusual for them? Or is there something that they would normally be very motivated for this practice and they're not? um, And I think
1: also that there's, I think theoretically, the role of the sports psychologist should kind of take that on as well. And and it's hard because, you know, what I have found with the the role of the sports psychologist within teams is you want them to really have a... A feel and the pulse of of the group of the team um and you and you want them to um have a close enough relationship as well with the players where they will tell the players uh that the players will tell them you know how they're how they're feeling around anything team related but at the same point they have to you know maintain confidentiality and not, you know, be able to walk in the coach's office and say, well, this player is feeling this and you need to back off on them. Um, and, and I think there is a really, really important role, you know, for the sports psychologist who also, you know, within, within my group was, is, is on my staff as well. Um, cause I think that is, that is the person that's really providing the best feedback to all of us around the emotional side of where the group is at. And, um, You know, I think I've always said the starting point for the sports psychologist within, you know, embedded within a team is to be able to say, to be able to walk into the coach's office and say, coaches, I know that you're saying X to the players, the players are hearing Y, right? The players are hearing something different than, you know, than than what you're trying to convey, that's really important feedback i think that that at times only the sports psychologist can provide to to a, a coaching staff um and it's really hard to find those people that can do that effectively but but i think that's that is where you're getting all this insight into you know the again this going back to complexity and 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 you know this the sense of interactions how how the coaches and, and and players are interacting with each other and what's the impact of the coaching emotionally and cognitively on the playing group and the coaches are getting back this rich feedback around um, how their coaching is, uh, is actually impacting the athletes. Uh, and, and so I think that's, again, that's a, a super important role that that I think is often misused and also I think distrusted as well. Right. I think there's this perception, high level soccer that, uh, that they're the sports psychologist, like the, the head coach has to be the sports psychologist, you know, not the, not, not anyone else. Yeah. You know?
0: And that, that was going to be my next question actually how often do you think that takes place so in in your experience from speaking to other practitioners how often do you think a sports psychologist is able to go and say to the coaches listen you're trying to convey this message like I'm, yeah. I'm watching sessions this is what you're trying to say but this is what they're hearing and this is what they're feeding back to me and there's a disconnect which is what's causing the issue of actual performance or execution of the technique how how often is that dialogue able to take place
1: yeah i think it's pretty rare um i think it's some level but you know the places i've been i've been able to you know bring people in that that can convey that um but i think it's Again, I think you know, and I've said this to you know to the sports psychologists that that I've kind of worked with here in the states that um ultimately and hopefully they're they're a clinical psychologist I mean, clinical psychologists should be, and you know and anyone that goes to therapy would know this you you have to be first and foremost a really good listener, right like you are you are there to listen first and foremost, and I think that's often lost where sports psychologists come in and they want to do, they want to create this program. They want to, you know, but, but you really want, if, if a sports psychologist is really going to impact a, a team, a high level team, especially in a high way, a high level way, they have to be able to walk in that environment and just listen. And so, you know, and so then again, the messages they're giving back to the coaching staff have to be really subtle. And I think, and again, like in therapy, like very nudging i think like hey i know you guys are trying to say this but i think this is what the players are actually hearing back you know i don't know if that's your intention that might be your intention you know and i think that's again i think they're they should be really good listeners and really good communicators and you know and i still find that a really intelligent high level coach if you place around them someone who's a really good listener and a really good communicator the coach will find use for that for that person
0: yeah, it's, it's it's a fine balancing act, isn't it? To make sure that they're in a position yeah. to actually give some useful feedback and the coach will take it as well. And Not going, who's yeah. this random person that we've hired that's coming and telling me how to coach? And they're actually going, yeah, you know what? That's useful. Maybe my intervention there could have gone in this direction that allows me to convey the message better to, to players. Um, one thing that we mentioned earlier, uh, kind of off there, and I wanted to touch basically on, is just the the, the scope of preparing players for the different uh, environments that they're going to be playing in obviously you mentioned with the cold weather teams such as your Toronto is potentially New York and uh, New England etc they're going from maybe snowy conditions where you know it is, it's coming close to freezing or whatever it might be down to you guys where it's 40 degrees and vice versa you've got the difference in altitude from a you know a Colorado to to down to la etc so from an actual uh performance point of view how can you prepare your players for those environments without i guess flying there two or three days early yeah. and just getting yeah. a little bit more extended exposure to it
1: yeah yeah because in fact i think our approach has been the exact opposite where our preference is always to go in as late as possible um I think again that you know the league is at a place where if you go in multiple days before, you don't always know what your your training arrangements will be. Um, you know, our training facility is is amazing. Um we were able to kind of really spend a lot of time designing it how we wanted to. So there's so many benefits to being at home, staying in your own bed, getting the food you know that we provide to our players that we try to go as late as possible. Uh uh having said that, you know, I think. the biggest challenge in the league is probably heat and heat exposure, you know, because we do play through the summer. Unlike almost every other league in the world, we are playing through the warmest parts of of the summer. Uh, So that creates challenges as well. Salt Lake and Denver. And and again, I think, you know, those teams try to create a very up-tempo type game where they're at to try to kind of wear teams down. Uh, You know, I guess I, d- I don't feel like the the cold is as much of an issue as as maybe other leagues because we do I think the league does a decent job scheduling most of those early season uh fixtures at at the warmer climate home. So we'll have more home games typically in the, the front of the season. Orlando will have more home games, et cetera. Um you know, again, I think the league is very careful to make sure that that um the games are well attended, right? So it, it doesn't really make sense to have a you know an outdoor game scheduled in Toronto on February seventeenth necessarily. Um and then you have other situations where, you know, Montreal plays their early season games uh in their dome stadium, the Olympic Stadium in Montreal, and and then Vancouver's inside as well. And um, so you basically have places like Chicago and Toronto that are, that are colder, but but overall I I think that it's it's Dealing with the heat exposure is a huge challenge and a little bit of altitude. We actually do have an altitude room in our training facility. And so we'll do a lot of repeat sprint. Um, we we might get in four exposures to like post-training repeat sprint, um, efforts in the altitude room prior to playing our games altitude. And we we've always had very, very high running outputs. And, and I think even this year, you know, one of our, our second highest running output was at salt Lake, um, at altitude uh this year so we try to prep guys for that you know and and there is a there is an actually physiologic, physiological adaptation to doing some work in the altitude of the room but there's also i think there's the there's the psychological and giving players confidence as are about to go into altitude that they feel prepared um you know, and and then i guess it's there's the environmental conditions within the league that are challenges but then there's also you know the two other pieces are just the length of travel Um, you know, if, if you're going from Seattle or Vancouver to Miami, you know, you're talking about almost a six hour flight, um, for, for a league game. Um, if you are, if you live on either coast and you have to go play in the other coast, you're, you know, oftentimes you are traveling a whole day and potentially losing a whole training day that week as well. So, um. And then and then, you know, again, still just the the artificial grass. You know, we, we do have a a set of teams that plays in NFL stadiums on artificial grass, and and that's something that the ball plays differently. It's it's you know, lo- you know, loads the body in a little different ways and um guys can get some tightness and soreness from those games they don't normally get. And um, yeah, so I think those are those are kind of the main challenges, I guess, uh with the way the league is structured now.
0: And get some nice turf burns as well. i would imagined I played at the 11 a side game for the first time in a number of years. Um, the other week on some 3G, decided to do a slide tackle and came <laughs> up back at the it. I wish I hadn't done that, but yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think the psychological bit is a really interesting factor. I know we've linked to that quite a lot in this, but I, I saw a post uh via one of our former guests, Toby Booth. Um, and in South Africa, a rugby team said. It said on their wall, uh, like 1,625 feet above sea level. It does matter as the players are going out. And, you know, as a psychological piece for a a team visiting and whatnot, I can imagine if that's the last thing you read before you go out into the stadium. It's a really small marginal game, but it might be something. But it sounds like... You guys have got a, a different route in terms of doing it actually on the day and just kind of making the preparation as best you can where you are. We'll go in, we'll perform, and then we'll get out again, which is a which is a yeah seems a real sensible way of doing it. Um, in terms of your I guess transition for the three years when you were with the, the Magic, then what differences or challenges did you see going from soccer into into NBA in terms of the type of athletes they were? I know earlier uh, on you mentioned. Yeah. I guess the pure profile of of these players you know they're going to be some of the probably the most sought after individuals within within the states etc was was there anything in particular that stood out to you in terms of just them as athletes first and foremost
1: Yeah I mean obviously totally different types of athletes right you go from just the this uh you know dealing with these horizontal athletes that are running around and sprinting and um you know, you're concerned about hamstring strains, you're concerned about them shooting too much, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go work with a set of athletes where they're pure vertical athletes and they're jumping and landing. And now you're worried about them jumping and landing all the time. And so the the nature of the load placed on their bodies is so drastically different that I think, you know, it's hard to appreciate that until you're actually in the league, you know, in, in a different sport like that and working. Right now you're looking at you know patella tendon stress fifth met fifth metatarsal bone stress issues achilles tendon you know tendinopathies um, so many ankle sprains you can't believe it cuz you've got you know a bunch of 6 foot 10 7 footers jumping and landing all in the exact same spot right and so the amount of different ankle uh, tweaks you get and um, so from that standpoint totally different um, in terms of the types of injuries you're seeing, uh, the preparation, it's a smaller squad size. And what I found really interesting about the NBA was that it was individualized to a level that I had never seen before. And, you know, part of my role was to hire a a new medical staff, you know, multiple physical therapists, um, sports scientists, a couple strength coaches. And really my role ended up being, you know, liaising with, the coaching staff um part of the role anyways liaising with the coaching staff where you basically would have you know five assistant coaches 15 players every assistant coach kind of focused on a different position takes on the three players in that team in that position um essentially every morning you'd have what they call like little little technical sessions um where before training started you'd have like these little 20 minute blocks the coaches would do these little 20-minute blocks with guys before, which could be 15 minutes of shooting and, you know, five minutes of video, Um, we would have to decide how we're going to have the different physios take on these different 15 players, you know, and who developed a good relationship with whom and, you know, and then which strength coach would work with which player. And so the way I kind of saw it is you're always trying to triangulate you know the right physio, the right strength coach together with the assistant coach assigned to a player to make sure that player got what they what they needed. Um, and that player, from a you know individual skills technical standpoint, would get little doses of things every day. And then you know we we could then individualize you know with the whatever strength coach where that player was in terms of a you know was he still in more an athlete development phase as a young player versus you know someone in their thirties that you're trying to maintain uh where they're at um and then and then what sort of chronic issues do that athlete have that they would need the same sort you know that someone that specialized in certain types of medical treatment right did he have a a tendinopathy you know that that would flare up at certain times of the year um or the degenerative knee or you know always a low back hip type guy and which physio would be best you know with that with that athlete and um and making sure that kind of that that system kind of flowed really well uh and then the other piece that's really different to that role too is you end up having to communicate be in regular communication with all the players agents as well which is totally different um because you know because everything is so contractually driven and financially driven the 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 agents want to know the players are taken care of when they when the players injured the agent wants to know the agent has their own set of doctors that they like to consult with when a player is injured and, and, uh, and coordinating, you know, our doctors talking to that person's doctor. And it was a, a really different, you know, really different uh, role in a lot of ways from what I do now.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really interesting piece. I know I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan, so I know all of the challenges that can be around that, particularly with Kawhi Leonard a few years ago, where, um obviously ended up leaving and moving to toronto because because of that type of situation um in terms of the, the the players themselves how do you coordinate that whilst also having obviously a minimum of an 82 game schedule but hopefully beyond that by going into playoffs yeah. etc how do you manage all of those those moments interactions support with them potentially flying back from minnesota last night they've got a day off and then they're going to play the heat the following night and then they're in for one day and then they're flying to Cleveland. Yeah. What, what, what does that look like from a, I guess a management perspective and ensuring they get the support they need?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting part of, of basketball relative to working in, in soccer is, you know, in soccer, these 90 minute, I mean, now hundred minute games are, uh, they're maximal events where these players end the game and they are exhausted. Right. And so, you know, You know, and obviously now it's a big thing within within European football, whether you are, you know, do you have two rest days between games? Can you have three rest days? You know, the league's starting to schedule more with only two rest days between and players are going into the next game, not fully recovered. Right. And I I found with the NBA is that the the running loads, you know, at the end of the day, if a a player played more than 35 minutes in the NBA game, that's a lot of minutes. Um, I'll, your average guys are playing 25 to 30 minutes a game. You have basically two rotations of players where your, your first rotation of players will be playing somewhere 30 to, you know, 30 to 38 minutes a game. And then the, the other is, is then playing the other, um, you know, 20 some minutes in this kind of rotation that you have, um, 15 to 18 minutes. And so, and so those are manageable loads that there's sometimes where a guy will play 20 minutes and he can still get a strength session in after the game and, um, really low minute players who do a little bit of a top off type work after the game. Um, and so it's, uh, it's more the main, t- but, but then if you think about it, oftentimes, uh, let's say the team has shoot around in the morning of the game, players are coming in at nine. They're doing like a little shoot around from 10 to 11. They're going back. Um, they're doing a 20-minute a individualized warm-up with, with their assistant coach at some point between 4.30 and 7 for a 7 o'clock game. They do the team warm-up. They're playing their certain amount of minutes. And again, it's 35 minutes potentially spread over two and a, two and a half hours. So it's really like you're managing this, this kind of sub-maximal chronic load over the course of the season. Um, where they're, they're getting exposure to a lot of lower load stuff, um, lower load work, um, guys take, like to take a lot of shots. They like to get out and just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And there's, again, I think there's a, there's probably a psychological piece to feeling confident and comfortable around shooting that much. Uh, and so you're really just trying to manage not just the games, but really everything that goes around it. So, um,
0: And how do you create flexibility around
1: that? Because like you said there,
0: it might be that they're they're doing a shoot-around or a shoot-around gets cancelled all of a sudden, which means the opportunity to go and have a 20-minute workout in the gym now comes available. Or, you know, I know Kobe Bryant was a big one for this. If he'd had a nightmare of a game, he's then like, no, I'm going to go and do a shoot-around after the game now. And, you know, players and I guess coaches and whatnot, there's going to be high levels of flexibility in that fifteen with what players want yeah. to do how do you i guess coordinate that to a piece where you go yeah it's sensible to do that or actually this isn't sensible what what you're about to do yeah. and that's what goes to back to being
1: yeah i mean my my role in terms of being basically each assistant coach in a lot of ways was responsible for their three players and where their three players were at so then it's really about having communication with each assistant coach around okay this guy has had a really heavy minutes this is so you know you know, this this old injury might be aggravated. We need to back off a little bit here. We can do more here. This guy is a young 20-year-old that's just come in the league that we have to develop and build over the course of the year. So we need to prioritize X. This player is a whatever is a, is a 12-year vet who has his routine. And you just, you know, you have to just kind of guide and almost stay out of his way. He's going to tell us what he needs. And And every player was so different. But that's, you know, I think, again, that's where my role is, you know, at, at that level as a, you know, not a practitioner at all, purely a manager is managing all of those relationships and, you know, and, and what players are doing with their assistant coaches and the strength coach, and then what they need from a physical therapist perspective, you know, just managing all of that in a case by case basis. So it's just this ongoing, um, again, going back to this quantitative versus qualitative, right. But just really feeling where everyone, where everyone is at, what, what they need again, going back to this, the, you know, the, the emotional and cognitive piece as well, over 82 games. And um, you're going to, you're going to go through periods where you lose four or five games in a row, just because it's the NBA. And you're going to go through periods where guys are playing great and and feel really great about themselves and how you're kind of managing through all those areas. It's uh, that's, that's the art of that in some ways i think
0: yeah no i think that's one i'm gonna to have to dive into a little bit deeper so it might be might be one that we have to do some digging on and you know that individualized piece it seems to be coming more and more in football but be, yep. be great to hear um from, from one of the coaches actually how individualized they go on those plans but i'm conscious of time so i don't want to take up any more than you've generously, generously given us um so the last question for me, which is if I was to ask any of the players or staff that you work with or work alongside um to describe you in three words, how would you hope they described you?
1: Hopefully, it would be collaboration, um, empowering, I, I would hope. and uh, trusting, I think you know, I think we live in this in this environment where, you have to keep the trust of the player. The player's trust is so, so critical. Um, and the players have to trust that you have their best, you know, uh, intentions, you know, at, at heart, as you're making decisions, right. That you're as you know, the players know that you're there to, to again, make sure they arrive at every game prepared to play physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, and I think that's, that's uh that's always a challenge as you as you win and lose games i think you want the staff to feel like you're mentoring and empowering them to grow and develop as, as practitioners and then you're trying to create this collaborative um nature amongst your group where we're all working together we have overlapping skill sets that we you know we we can collaborate and pick and choose who the right person is to work with the right team uh, at the right time and you know that's something Interesting. I heard Tony Strudwick say about, you know, what's sports science or high performance? What's what's high performance, right? And the high performance is having the right person do the right thing with the players at the right time. You know, and I think that's that's something you build over time um, to get that right within your multidisciplinary team. Perfect.
0: Listen, David, an amazing insight into performance sport that you've discussed there and loads of, I think, really good te- uh, key takeaways for people. So, yeah, really appreciate your time and hopefully one uh, we can catch up on again further down the road.
1: Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on.